1: Hello and welcome to Which Please, a fortnightly podcast wherein two lady scholars talk about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah
2: McGregor. And today we're discussing the second film in the Harry Potter series, 2002's Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. You have to say secrets like that all the time. <laughs> secrets. Secrets. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in case this makes it into the recording, I want to set the scene, which is that uh, it is broad daylight. And we're recording this in my office.
1: (laughs) On our campus. (laughs) On our campus. It's the first of April, and like some kind of cruel April Fool's Day joke, it is a fucking blizzard outside. It's really horrifying, and everybody
2: feels insane as a result. It's a wizard blizzard. It's a wizard (laughs) blizzard. You're welcome. You are the best. Uh, So... Neither of us are drunk. No. Um, nobody's adequately caffeinated. No, no. Nobody has had even a single chip today. Oh, no. um, so we are really pushing ourselves to the limits to see under what situations of <laughs> duress we can be funny.
1: This is like a terrible experiment. Yeah. You're all welcome.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> to start
2: off, here's our IMDB summary. Harry ignores warnings not to return to Hogwarts, only to find the school plagued by a series of mysterious attacks and a strange voice haunting him. Ooh. Ooh. I feel like that's a pretty accurate summary. Yeah, yeah, that's basically the movie. Yeah, yeah, those are the things that happen. I'm comfortable with that. Let's start things off with
1: Professor Time with Marcel. This is the segment in which we talk about adaptation theory since the first 2 movies Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone oops sorry Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets are relatively similar, and the differences that they have from the books are also relatively similar. We're not going to stray into further details about adaptation theory. We also, Marcel, uh, may or may not be completely prepared to stray further about adaptation theory, but we will remind you uh, a little bit about how it is that we are discussing the movies as adaptations. So, um, just to go back to our favorite Canadian scholar Linda Hutchins' definition of adaptation, Uh, we think about adaptation in terms of uh, the adaptation as a process, so the actual process in which the story is transposed from one medium to another, in our case from a book to a movie. And uh, how the adaptation functions as a product, so how the adaptation stands on its own, its strengths and weaknesses, what we like about it. And, of course, we talk about the differences between the adaptation film and the uh, source text,
2: Harry Potter. Wonderful. So there's a few key changes that... We were, I think, interested in some ways in the last film and are still interested in in this one. And one of those is um, the switch between the text and the film in terms of point of view, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a whole segment when we talk about the novels um, called The Boy Who Narrated because we're very interested in how the books are written from Harry's perspective and you Mm -hmm. have to... Read critically, sort of against the grain, to figure out what's actually happening and what's just Harry's
1: perspective. And the movies really don't do that. No, definitely not. Um, the movies are, are much more um, third person omniscient. Yeah, absolutely. in a way, like the the camera lens does this thing where it pretends to be objective, even though we know that that's not actually possible. Yeah. So you have this outside point of view um, looking
2: in on what's happening to everybody. And that really comes across in this movie because um, one of the sort of major plot lines is this whole thing where Harry sort of thinks he's going crazy. Um, he's performing acts that he doesn't realize he's performing, That is, he's speaking in parcel tongue and doesn't know he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last episode, we talked about how in that scene where he accidentally speaks in parcel tongue um, to scare the snake away from. Justin Finch Fletchley. You were so good at saying that name. That. We have no idea what it looked like from the outside. We only know Mm -hmm. what Harry knew. But in the movie, we see what it looks like from the outside, and we have no idea what Harry was doing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it is terrifying. Harry looks scary. Yeah. Scary Harry. The scariest scariest Harry.
2: Um, Yeah, it's really creepy. We hear him speak parcel tongue instead of hearing what he's actually trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so we get that same experience of sort of shock and alienation um and discomfort that mm-hmm. the viewers get. And there are the all of these scenes, the one that really struck me is Snape's face. He's obviously horrified with mm-hmm. what is happening. Yeah. Um, and you yourself watching Snape be horrified are like, oh my God I'm horrified too. What
1: are you uh, mm. And if you hadn't
2: already read the book this scene would have a, a markedly different impact.
1: Totally. And you know what I just realized right now? Um, Harry talks to that python in the first movie, and it's represented as him speaking in English. Okay. To a snake. I can't remember if it's a python or a boa constrictor or whatever. It's a big snake. It's Harry's talking to a great big snake. Big snake. Um, but in this movie, they actually show him speaking in Parseltongue. So we, have, we do actually get that shift in perspective, which is so ah. strange and I just thought of right now. And I have nothing more sophisticated to say about it.
2: Well, it's really interesting because we're not supposed to know at that point that Parseltongue is a thing. Uh-huh. Um, that it's not something that all wizards can do, just right. like Harry doesn't know. So yeah. in that moment, we do sort of share in his perspective.
0: Do you... Do you
2: talk to people often? All we know is what he knows, which is that apparently he can talk to snakes and that's kind of cool. Yeah. And it isn't in the second movie, all of a sudden we're pushed outside his perspective Mm -hmm. and get this image of him being sort of this possibly villainous figure. Right. So one of the other things that I was really, that I focused on um, that interested me about the second book um, was the way that it seemed to be attempting to teach lessons about empathy mm-hmm. um particularly in terms of Harry and his friends abruptly deserting um nearly headless Nick's death day party mm-hmm. in his moment of need and I don't think that this actually ended up being in the episode, but um mm-hmm. also Harry's total lack of sympathy for filch being a squib and for like his obvious suffering,
1: yeah, yeah, and those scenes are just gone, yeah yeah, yeah. We have no need to think about issues of empathy in this movie. this just it's just not there. except maybe for, except for dobby. maybe all of our all of our empathic energies are directed at Dobby at the very end. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting,
2: it might just be a matter of the sort of simplification of the movie's overall message, Mm -hmm. because it is simplified in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this in the context of the first movie, too, that they're making a lot of gestures to make Harry a much more straightforward hero figure. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the the ambivalence about him as a character gets elided. And this is one way, taking out these scenes in which he maybe behaves in less than admirable ways. Mm -hmm. As a child, well might do <laughs> yeah um, children children are sociopathic, yeah, I mean they 're sociopaths until you teach them not to be mm-hmm. that 's why yeah. you, you shouldn 't let wolves raise your children it's a very, no. very bad idea yeah, I know you 've been considering it, but don 't
1: one of the things that I found really um, surprising about the film about rewatching the film is the representation of Lucius Malfoy. I guess in the books, it makes sense that he's evil because we talked a lot about Harry's inability to distinguish the gray zones between what is good and evil. Um, But in the film, he's just so objectively evil. He's just so terrifying and horrible and evil. And when we were talking about this, Hannah, uh, one of the things that you mentioned is that you were interested in the representation of, of bad white wizards or bad white people in general. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, it really struck me. The
2: moment in which it really struck me is the scene where Lucius walks into Hagrid's cabin um, and he has a bow in his hair, Mm -hmm. like this really big bow in his hair. And we already were thinking through sort of um, the effeminacy of... Draco Malfoy, mm-hmm. and how that's supposed to stand in for shorthand for his villainy. Mm-hmm. But that really gets extended in this movie through his father, who's a more extreme version of him. Mm-hmm. And his effeminacy, his sort of effete dandy persona, is tied into a sort of visual vocabulary that I would link both to a sort of French aristocratic mm-hmm. image, mm-hmm. Um, to a sort of southern slave-owning plantation image, right, which mm-hmm. is amplified by the fact that he is a slave owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the movie also seems really obsessed with his whiteness. Mm-hmm. There's one scene where it's, the camera closes right in on him and it's highlighted the very very pale blue of his eyes and the intense whiteness of his hair. Mm. Um, like, the Malfoys are almost albinos. They're so <laughs> white.
1: Except they can't be albinos because albinos are too white. They're scary white. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. They're, they must be evil because they've taken whiteness too far. Mm-hmm. But something almost like that is happening here. Mm-hmm. You know, the the ness the sort of link between the Slytherins and Nazis, which we've already talked about, the link between the Malfoy family and old money, mm-hmm. aristocracy, um, the implications of inbreeding that are inherent in that, mm-hmm. um, the link to slave owning, that they're having this sort of vocabulary of bad whiteness piled on top of them. And here's a lesson for you erstwhile listeners. (laughs) Any narrative that's trying to represent bad whiteness to you is probably interested in doing it so that it can model forms of good whiteness. (laughs) And so in the scene where we have Malfoy and Harry sort of coming head to head over the freedom or lack thereof of Dobby, Mm -hmm. Lucius Malfoy needs to stand in for that bad whiteness so that Harry can be the good white man who frees slaves, who Mm. comes from a poorer background, who has pulled himself up by his own bootstraps rather than having wealth and privilege behind him.
1: So essentially what you're saying is that these kinds of representations still do the work of shoring up whiteness as inherently good by separating it from bad whiteness. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: and I think that we see even more of that uh, in the very strange visual vocabulary of the bad wizards mm-hmm. um, when Harry accidentally does just like a super bad job of saying Diagon Alley. In the book, he sneezes. In the movie, he just says it wrong. He just <laughs> says diagonally. And you're like... You do know how to talk, I'm pretty sure. We established <laughs> that. But he when he emerges into the wrong part of Diagon Alley, he is surrounded by um it's like he's he's gone not only back in time to Victorian England, but has accidentally stumbled into like an opium den mm-hmm. because everybody looks like an opium addict.
1: Yeah, everybody is like super high and covered in soot and coming out of the walls and trying to claw at his fresh young plush cheeks. Yeah, they're just gaunt and decrepit and
2: dressed in black and the actual shop, I can't remember what it's called, I don't
1: it's Borgen and Burks.
2: Borgen and Burks. You remember all the things. <laughs> Borgen and Burks is full of all of these really racialized props, so shrunken heads, mm-hmm. right, which have this really sort of troubling racialized history. And then the oriental implications of the opium den um, are all very firmly, again, putting certain wizards on the bad side of whiteness, in this case by linking them to a sort of orientalized aesthetic, which is going to come back when we finally meet Voldemort.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was something that we talked a little bit about in terms of Coral's Turban, and it remains consistent. It remains a consistent visual trope throughout these films. Yeah, absolutely. And we, again, need to ask ourselves whether...
2: It's a matter of rolling, or the directors in this case, just sort of drawing on a visual vocabulary that has these really oppressive histories, Mm -hmm. much as we were talking about the sort of anti-Semitic stereotype of the goblins um, as they appear. You know, is that an actual reference to... 2 anti-Semitic stereotypes or is it the fact that goblins themselves have this history of being tied into Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism and that the directors themselves are drawing on it without Mm -hmm. necessarily meaning to reference it? But now we're getting into the shady area of authorial intention and I don't care what people meant to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. If you are continuing to draw unselfconsciously on these really convenient tropes, it's still... It's still bad and wrong. You're still doing it wrong, except you're doing it Hollywood, which is going to make you all the money. So I guess you're doing it right, but not for us. No. We're not in it for the money. We're in it for the glory and the fame. (laughs) (laughs) There was a point where we were watching the movie, um, and I think this
2: is really the moment where Marcel was pushed over the edge in terms of realizing how far they are going with making Lucius Malfoy explicitly evil in the movie mm-hmm. in a way he is not in the book. That's the moment where he pulls his wand on Harry at the end.
1: Yeah, he pulls his wand on Harry at the oh, end after is. Harry has freed Dobby. You
0: lost me, my servant!
1: And uh, he says <laughs> which is the first half of the killing curse of Kedavra. He was literally going to murder Harry. He's so angry about losing his slave, he was literally going to murder Harry. <laughs> and that is That is completely bananas.
2: He was going to murder a 12-year-old on the grounds of the school where he is a member of the PTA. (laughs) Like, that's super inappropriate. The headmaster is right there.
1: Right outside of Dumbledore's office. Right outside of Dumbledore's office. It's it's comically villain-esque, is what it is. It's worse than Snape. It's worse than Snape's worst behaviors. It's just bananas.
2: It is. It is. And you have to ask again, why would they push it that far? Is it because they don't think that their viewers are able to register moral subtleties? Mm. Or is it, you know, that they want to set Lucius up as this sort of uncomplicated villain?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: One final conversation about uh, changes within the movie. um, And that is what I would call the spectacularization of magic, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In the books, magic is a thing you have to learn. Like they go to classes for it. Yeah. Like a lot, and they
1: read books, right? And they they have exams sometimes. Sometimes when they're not canceled.
2: (laughs) As a school treat. So ostensibly (laughs) there's a skill set, a knowledge base, Mm -hmm. some sort of actual acquiring of understanding of what you're doing mm-hmm. what you see magic as in the movies is people waving their wands and shouting mm-hmm. we get an image of a transfiguration class where McGonagall just tells them a word Ferraverto. and it's like now flick your wand at this thing And say this word, and then Ron tries to do it, and it doesn't go well, and everybody laughs at him. And I'm like, how the hell was he supposed to know how to do that? Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's the worst teaching I've ever seen. Like, here's a book. Read it good now.
1: And then we'll all laugh at you when you don't read it exactly in the way that we've decided you need to read it. Which is... Out loud? I don't. Know. I don't know. <laughs> like, that's not how you teach
2: things. In that scene, there's a blackboard in the background that's covered in these really elaborate symbols that suggest that transfiguration is like a complex subject mm-hmm. that they need to study. But we never see them actually like using that information. We never see what that might look like. I mean, I get that that might be boring. Mm-hmm. It's hard to represent academic pursuits as interesting. That's why mm-hmm. all academic movies. Feature montages of people reading in various poses. I was
1: just about to say that's why you need a montage with a clever voiceover. That's the purpose of those, or some kind of like sm- some kind of mood music, and you know, like some swelling of emotion, and maybe Robin Williams standing on a desk, and yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Why doesn't McGonagall get on a desk? It's like she doesn't even want them to learn. God, seriously. And you know what's so funny about that too is that we see in Lockhart's class. That he does actually teach them nothing, except we only realize that he teaches them nothing because they can't do anything, right? So he lets the pixies out of their cage.
0: Let's see what you make up of
1: And it's like, so you guys put them back now without having taught them anything. But it's that's the exact same way that, or that's the exact same classroom activity that we see in McGonagall's class, except in McGonagall's class, everything is orderly, so we're, I guess, led to assume that she had done some teaching before the camera popped in? Yeah, I'm unclear. In
2: McGonagall's class, her authority is established by the fact that she does what she's asking them to do impeccably first, Mm -hmm. and then they all fail. Right. right? Whereas in Lockhart's class, it's chaos because the um, proper order of things has been reversed, which is that Lockhart himself is incompetent and cannot model what he wants to do. And Hermione has to take control and actually fix things. And it should not be the student teaching the teacher. That's a flipped classroom. And we do not believe in flipped classrooms here at which please.
1: Absolutely not. Nope. We have nothing to learn from our student. That's no, that's obviously no, we have so yeah. much to learn from our students.
2: What is it? Sage on the stage versus guide, in the sa- guide on the side?
1: I have no idea what you're saying right now. Oh,
2: this is a terrible, gross saying that people use for the two understandings of what a professor should be like. So sage on the stage is like, a smart person standing at the front just telling you
1: things, whereas guide on
2: the side is like, you're just there to help people learn.
1: It's gross. What we're saying is that pedagogy is very complicated.
2: (laughs) That is exactly what we're saying. And Marcel, you pointed out while we were watching the movie that Quidditch is actually pretty similar to this sort of chaotic random treatment of magic.
1: Did I say that? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. There are like no rules in uh, in movie Quidditch. In movie Quidditch, it's just like this crazy free-for-all But um, that's all I have. I don't know. I don't know what else I said. I don't remember anything. What'd I say? (laughs) Say it smarter.
2: In In
1: the book, Quidditch has, there's like 400 possible ways you can do it wrong. Right. There are like 400 possible penalties or something like that. And there's some famous game where someone got all of them yeah. or got all the all of the penalties or fouls or whatever it's called. Yes. Yeah, we don't know how to sport. 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 I don't they do a sport and you can do a sport
2: wrong. But in the movie you can't do a sport wrong. In the movie it is insane chaos. Like a bludger is trying to oh, yeah. murder Harry and
1: nobody like calls a timeout. Yeah, that's right. Okay, this is coming back to me now. Yeah, they're just they're just they're just letting it happen as though... I mean, right. I gave the example that in a basketball game, if your basketball suddenly deflated, they wouldn't be like, well, you know, just going to wait for you to score There's some points. the breaks. Yeah. No, they would They would call timeout. They would bring out a new basketball, and then you would continue to bounce the basketball because basketballs need to be inflated. So when your bludger is uh, intentionally trying to attack a single player as opposed to just being the thing that gets batted around it's it's not doing its job it's not doing its sport job so it need a timeout needs to be called do sports better movie all the spells lift people up <laughs> what's that about <laughs> i mean it's part of this like the the way that magic
2: works in this movie which is that it's it's chaos. There's no skill or knowledge <laughs> behind it. It's pointing and shouting. And every spell causes people to fly up in the air in an absolutely ridiculous way. And that scene, the dueling club, which, mm-hmm. um, as Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support, pointed out, uh, nobody teaches them to do anything in the dueling club.
1: Right.
0: They're not yeah. actually
2: taught any of the spells.
0: Perhaps it would be prudent to first teach the students to block unfriendly spells, Professor.
2: An excellent suggestion, Professor Snape. It's just like, here, stand on this table, now point and shout, because that's how magic works. All of a sudden, Malfoy could make a snake come out of his wand, um, and both of them know how to cast these spells that cause the other person to get flung up in the air, which seems
1: incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and also, why would there be so many different spells that would just throw you up in the air? You know, like you would think throw up in the air would be sufficient, but they have like five different five different Latinish words for it. Um, and the other thing that's really weird is that, um, and I'm very curious about this, in the book it's Snape who whispers into Malfoy's ear the spell that releases the snake from Malfoy's wand, but Malfoy just does it on his own. And that's a really, it's a very suspicious change because it, I think, makes Snape a little bit less ambiguous in the film. He's much more... I mm. think Snape is treated more
2: sympathetically in the films than he is in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And that might, again, have to do with the shift in perspective, right? We only Mm -hmm. see Snape from Harry's point of view. And at this point, Harry just hates Snape. He's just a villain. So all we're ever going to see of Snape is Snape's villainy. Um, And that really comes across in little things like when you get shots of Snape's reactions to things, which are the reactions of an adult, mm-hmm. um, not the reactions of a villain, that comes across in the movie. In the book, Harry's not going to record those things because he probably doesn't know how to interpret that kind of information. Right. But this kind of, you know, that's one kind of shift. That's more a sort of medium specific shift. But this is a really deliberate change in the way that the plot actually happens, right? Mm -hmm. That instead of it being Snape who tells Malfoy basically how to do something that's going to make Harry lose or going to publicly humiliate Harry, instead it's just Malfoy doing it himself. And we Mm -hmm. get more, I mean, we will talk in a bit about Malfoy's villainy too. (laughs) Um, But I mean, it just turns Malfoy into the same sort of unambiguous villain that his father is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's also worth pointing out um, the very smart question that our uh, friend Claire asked while we were watching the movie, and it is, uh, if you leave the animal as an object in transfiguration class, is the animal dead? We ask this of you, our listeners. Tweet us with the answer.
2: So the final point about adaptation um, in this section is, uh, I've written down this note as entirely in block letters, and it says, too scary for kids. This movie is too scary for kids. This movie is way too scary for kids. It is, I mean, it's
1: scary to me. The basilisk is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and The writing uh, in blood on the walls is terrifying. The dead cat, hang- it's not dead, I know, it's petrified, but you don't know it's petrified right away. It just looks like a dead cat hanging in the middle of a hallway. Yeah, I mean, the tone
2: shift between the two movies is remarkable. The first one is... So clearly a children's movie. Mm -hmm. And yes, the climax is scary, but it's scary in a pretty unthreatening way, right? Mm -hmm. There's no blood. There's no real violence. Mm -hmm. um, Nobody has a weapon used against them. To all of a sudden escalate from that to a movie where Harry gets bitten by a giant snake.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And also the spiders.
1: Oh my God. Fuck.
2: So the question that we had was whether... Part of what's happening here is the disjunction between where uh, Rowling is with the books being written and therefore where her sort of faithful audience is Mm age-wise and when the movies are getting made. Because at this point, the fourth book has already been written. So the original readership, the dedicated readership for these books is older and the tone of the books has already gotten darker. Mm -hmm. And so we're wondering if the movies are getting darker faster to keep up with where the book series is, rather than matching the sort of age of the book reader.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you like having your future determined by the whims of a snarky accessory? Good, because it's time for the sorting ceremony in which we talk casting, performances, and the vicissitudes of Snape's hairstyles. You tried to slip me up by putting vicissitudes in there, but it didn't work. I totally did. I wrote it down and I was like, maybe Marcel doesn't know how to say this word. <laughs> I, I actually don't. I I don't. I just oh, took a guess. You said it perfectly. Thank You're you. very smart. I said it in parcel tongue.
2: It sounds like this. <laughs> so that should sound exactly like how Marcel said the words. Yeah, it did. Are you going insane, listeners? (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's talk characters. Do we want to start with the ones uh, with our sort of faithful original cast and then talk about the new characters? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Okay. I would like to bring up then, now I apologize because I cannot recall which uh, lovely listener sent us this link, but somebody sent us a link to a conversation about whether Hermione's changes in the movie are actually a disservice to her character Mm -hmm. Um, and essentially the sort of thesis of this argument was that Hermione who is um, a flawed complex character in the books is made um, almost godlike Mm -hmm. in the movies and that that, in fact, makes her less interesting, less rich, less nuanced as, as a character. Um, because she's so perfect and she's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And we really see that coming into play in this movie. I was really convinced as I watched it, right? Yeah. Her hair is perfect. They gave up on giving her frizzy hair immediately. Her hair is a glossy curtain of ringlets. Mm-hmm. It's outrageous.
1: And she's also not obnoxious at all. I mean, in the book,
2: she... Bonds in an embarrassing way over Lockhart throughout the entire book. And we get one scene of her feeling like a little giggly and then it never comes up again. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like she learned her lesson after being embarrassed once or something like that, you know, or she still maybe has a sort of soft spot in her heart for him, but at no point does she like ogle him or doodle her timetable with hearts or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Not like she does in the book.
2: She doesn't attempt to defend him after he releases Cornish pixies into the classroom. And in that scene, she is single-handedly responsible for solving that problem rather Mm -hmm. than it being uh, a long effort on part of all of the students in the class. Mm -hmm. She's also given some of Dumbledore's lines. Oh yeah, that's so weird. Right? There's a scene where Lucius, Malfoy, and Harry are having a confrontation in Flourish and Blotts. And uh, Malfoy comments that Harry is very brave for using the Dark Lord's name. And Mm -hmm. Hermione says, fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. Mm -hmm. Which is Dumbledore's line from the first book. Yeah. So if there's any... Evidence that you need to show that Hermione is being made godlike—it's the fact that she's given the dialogue of the character who is essentially meant to stand in for God.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And she's just a
2: just a wee girl. She's just a wee girl. So here's my question for you: Given our obvious uh, pro-Hermione stance in general. Do you think that her shift from being a flawed, sometimes embarrassing character in the books into being a perfect goddess-like creature in the films does her a disservice or, in fact, just represents her the way that most women are?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I'm actually not sure because I really see both what is so compelling about this argument that her, her perfection in the film does her a disservice as a character Um, At the same time, though, I'm also really tempted to say that women in movies are so constantly made secondary and flawed.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
1: we, we just get so few perfect female characters in movies that I, so on the one hand I totally see where this is coming from. I completely see how this um, I completely see how this perfection really, really undermines a lot of Hermione's character development. But I really think that this is just a, an issue of adaptation. That in a film adaptation especially one that's designed for families or for kids, I personally think it's more important that you have a spectacular and perfect female character like Hermione and McGonagall is another really good example, then I think you need to show the depth of um, character development that I think is so crucial in the book. And I think that's because the way that we encounter or experience those two um, different mediums, I don't know how I started that sentence. Um, (laughs)
2: I mean, a big part of it is the difference in terms of how people encounter or experience books versus mm-hmm. how they
1: encounter and experience movies. Right. Yes, this is what I was this is what I was trying to trying to wrap my mouth around. <laughs> and I think that especially for people who are both reading and watching the movies, which I think is, I think it's safe to say is a substantial percentage of the Harry Potter faniverse mm-hmm. fandom. Faniverse is a word. Faniverse. And I, I think in that sense what you get is a little bit of both. So it's true that you definitely lose a lot of what makes Hermione so special and wonderful and why she's so admirable as a written character with this too much perfection. But at the same time, it is just so great to have such a strong and compelling young female character yeah. in movies. Yeah. That's my answer. That's a good
2: answer. Part of it for me comes down to the difference between aspiration and identification, Mm -hmm. right? Which is to say, do I want women characters who I can aspire to be like or women characters who I can identify with? Mm -hmm. Um, And both of those things are really valuable things to have. And it's not something that men have to choose between. Right. True. Never. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. And I shouldn't have to choose. I should get characters who are just aspirational and wonderful and smart and competent and always have perfect hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also get characters who are flawed and complex um, and sort of anti-heroines who I can sort of identify with as they face Particular struggles and
1: challenges. I want both those things. I don't want to have yeah. to choose. Well, and as we as we know, because Gina Davis, who is a flawless earth goddess, has has told us publicly, women only make up about thirty percent of characters, and uh, even even in scenes of, um, I think it's actually less. I think it's eighteen percent. In uh, so in street scenes or something like that, you only get about like eighteen to thirty percent of those random people being women. And so if I I think if we had a more accurate representation of women as being 51% of the population, then maybe we would have that that kind of representation in our female characters. We would have both flawed and complex characters, and we would have ones who are just super perfect already, because that's what we get with our male characters, right? Yeah.
2: Speaking of um, identification versus aspiration, uh, let's talk about Ron in this movie.
1: Good idea. Um, Because
2: I'm not quite sure what Ron is supposed to be doing here. I mean, in the book, he's another thing entirely. Ron is like Mm -hmm. the perfect best friend in the book, right? He's loyal. He sometimes speaks truth to Harry when he needs to hear hard truths. Mm -hmm. And other times he's just unquestionably there for him. He has his own set of skills. He's very good at chess. In the movies, in this movie, he is a bumbling fool. (laughs) It is so strange. Everything interesting he does in the book has just disappeared. Um, He's doofier. Uh, He's really undercredited as a character. He basically follows Harry around and repeatedly says, man, I wish Hermione was here because she's good at things. Yeah. Yeah, it's really embarrassing. There's one moment where he actually really does something, and it's this insane change to the plot where after Lockhart has accidentally enchanted himself and wiped his own memory,
1: Ron inexplicably smashes him over the head with a rock. Yeah, he 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 beats Lockhart unconscious. I know he only hits him once, but that is still literally beating. He literally beats Lockhart unconscious with a rock. He could have killed, he could have killed Lockhart. He could have accidentally been a murderer. Yeah, you really shouldn't
2: hit people in the head with rocks. It's super bad, especially not after they've had a major traumatic brain injury, which is essentially what having your memory wiped is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a good, you just raised a really good question. Is Lockhart's lasting (laughs) is Lockhart's lasting mm, what's the word I'm looking for memory loss memory loss permanent because in the movie Ron hits him over the head or is it because he obliterated his own memory as we as we know in the book I mean it's an adaptation it could be either Ron just gave him permanent amnesia in the movie
2: I mean even if he didn't Take the situation where Lockhart has just been turned into a now totally harmless and helpless character. Why does he need to be unconscious? Why does Ron assault him physically? I don't, it doesn't make any sense. And so in conclusion, bad job movie for making Ron... A useless psychopath.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, without any of the nuances of how children overcome being psychopaths by, you know, learning to empathize. <laughs> So let's talk about The Professors. Okay, good, great.
2: The first note I have here is McGonagall, colon, all the sassiest faces. Mm -hmm. Which is basically all you really need to know about McGonagall in this movie. But just to gloss that a
1: little bit, uh, McGonagall makes all the sassiest faces. She gives Lockhart so much sassy side eye. It's awesome.
2: It's absolutely incredible. Whenever he's talking, the camera's like, let's see what McGonagall thinks about this. And what she thinks is always, this guy's a fuckwit hmm yeah. It's really satisfying. But perhaps more excitingly, Snape clearly is in on the joke because there's a lot of scenes where you see McGonagall just like rolling her eyes at Lockhart and then the camera cuts to Snape and he's just like, yeah, God, what a fuckwit.
1: Yeah, you know what I think? So, so we talked about how Snape is less villainous in this movie. We also talked when we were watching it about how he seems really sad. He just seems really kind of bummed out and heartbroken in this movie. And you know what I think it is? Just occurred to me right now. Snape really wants Lockhart's job. And Dumbledore hired the stupidest, most useless person to be Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher before giving that job to Snape. No wonder Snape is so bummed out in this movie.
2: That is so sad. That is heartbreaking. It's like... Being a, an adjunct professor in a department, applying for a job, and mm. having somebody else who is woefully underqualified in comparison to you getting the job in, instead, it's just heartbreaking.
1: Just because they are white and pretty and famous. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's we know that in the long run, the reason why Dumbledore is hiring a variety of incompetent defense against the dark arts teachers is something.
1: Do we... Is there a reason... <laughs> You know what? I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> we'll find out when we get to book six, but I really don't remember if there's a reason before that. We will find out. Um, but it
2: certainly looks like he gets the job over Snape because he's prettier and has better
1: dueling side capes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's a, he's a, uh, he's the, he's the better kind of white person, Mm -hmm. right? Snape is evil white. Snape is opium den white. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Too white, pale, pasty, Mm -hmm. just sort of creepy. Lockhart is the golden boy. Mm -hmm. Um, The Lockhart similarly has his um, essential villainy being represented to us via his effeminacy. Mm -hmm. That's very true. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That continues to be really important. I mean, His outfits are incredible. Mm -hmm. I want 100% of them. Why don't I have a dueling cape? (laughs) All of my life that has led to me not owning a dueling cape has been bad. Mm -hmm. All of my decisions have been wrong. It's also amazing to watch how uh, they don't let you, even for a moment when watching this movie, doubt that Lockhart is... Uh, full of shit because every time he lies about something he makes shifty eyes (laughs)
1: an excellent idea to show them that professor Snape. but if you don't mind me saying it
0: was pretty (laughs) obvious uh what you're about to do and if i had wanted to stop you it would have been only too easy he looks
1: around quickly to see if anybody noticed that he lied and everybody did (laughs) everybody did it's so great all of the interactions between the
2: adults are really good in this movie Mm -hmm. they've leaned more heavily on the acting chops of these amazing characters. And you really get to see that in just these little sort of momentary interactions and the way that being actual competent actors, they can communicate things via facial
1: expression without dialogue. As opposed to the children who haven't learned to do that yet. We talked about that with the first movie, just about Harry looking a little bit like he needs to fart most of the time. (laughs) But the actors actually have, the grown-up actors have um, excellent, excellent facial expressions. They're just able to convey so much. And it's because they're excellent actors, right? Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, and Maggie Smith are all for real grown-up actors.
2: Yeah, yeah. And... and you raised a question when we were talking about this, about what, how it is that this movie has gotten these incredible grown-up actors, mm-hmm. serious actors. Mm-hmm. Is it that they knew that this was going to be a big deal project right from day one? I mean, the books were already a phenomenon when the first movie was being cast. So were they just like, this is going to be huge. These are going to be six to seven movies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is... A great opportunity to be part of something that's going to be a really big um social phenomenon and so or cultural phenomenon so let's get on board with it now or is the movie seeking out
1: like the best actors they can get because kids can't ask yeah yeah I mean it really it really makes you wonder how much the film does rely on the strength of these adult classically trained actors you know Um, we talked about this idea of Kenneth Branagh being cast in a shitty kids movie while he is you know just 10 minutes uh, 10 minutes earlier directing an adaptation of Hamlet and then you know probably going to go be on the stage with the you know, Royal Shakespeare company or something like that. It it just, it's a little bit, it's a little bit baffling, but at the same time, it's so delightful. So maybe these actors are just like, what fun. Maybe Kenneth Branagh loved the idea of playing this idiotic dandy of a shitty wizard.
2: You know, yeah. I've always had the impression that Alan Rickman felt like he was slumming it in these movies. But I think that impression comes from the fact that he's so sad
1: because Snape is sad mm-hmm. because that's how acting works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And do you remember? I mean, we're jumping ahead a whole bunch of movies. But after the last movie came out, Alan Rickman wrote this really beautiful uh Reflection on playing Snape over all of those years. Because I think he, if I'm remembering right, he was initially not super into the part because he didn't realize how complex and interesting Snape would become. We'll talk about that more later. Oh, I did not know about that. And I'm excited about that. And I will look into that. Mm-hmm. So I
2: think the last character that we need to talk about, who um, should we talk about? Dumbledore?
1: Let's just say the one line that we wrote down about this. Okay. Why is Dumbledore so useless in this movie? What does he do? What is his function? Does he have one? He doesn't. The answer is he doesn't. The end.
2: So the last thing I'd like to talk about really briefly is the portrayal of Dobby in the movie. I very much got a sense in the book that he was being played to some degree for laughs, right? He's a bit comical. Mm -hmm. Um, He gets Harry into these sorts of hilarious situations um, that don't actually have real bad consequences, but they're they're sort of hijinks that Harry needs to get out of somehow. Um, But the movie manages to do this really good job of making him not funny. And they do it because he has a sad old man voice.
0: Mm -hmm. Dobby had to punish himself, sir. Dobby almost spoke ill of his family,
1: sir. And his towel is so dirty. Like, when you see him wearing that dirty dish rag towel, it's not... I mean, maybe... Who knows what we're all thinking when we're reading the book for the first time and trying to picture what kind of weird, like, printed loincloth it is that he's made out of a tea towel. But when you see that what he's wearing is actually filthy, or I think maybe he's wearing a pillowcase... Yeah, I think it's pillowcase. Yeah, I think it's Winky that wears a T— Anyway, whatever. We'll talk about that when we get to her. But yeah, it's so— Like, you just see how, like, miserable and dirty he is— it really puts into your sight the degree of misery that he lives through and it stops being something. I mean, we're not, I think as people, we're not very good at imagining suffering that we have not ourselves experienced. And I think that's one of the really great things that movies are able to do is to kind of give us a kind of visual vocabulary for things that we don't have immediate experiences of.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: and Dobby's
2: experience of suffering, the way that he's sort of beaten down by his own slavery, um, is so effectively captured in the movie's image of him.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I found him more heartbreaking than I had expected to. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's the scene at the very end when he is, when he is freed the with the sock Dobby is just with
0: clothes.
1: Dobby is really emotional me. because you want it so much. You're so much more um, emotionally invested because, you can see what it means to him. Mm-hmm. As a side note, that
2: is one of the few changes in the movie um, that I think was really effectively done. Just a moment where the scriptwriter was like, rolling, that was ridiculous. I'm just going to correct this. Mm-hmm. Which is in the book, Harry puts Tom Riddle's notebook inside his sock Yuck. and hands that to Lucius Malfoy. Which is one, uh, socks aren't that big. You're a child. Try to fit a book into a sock. It's hard. A
1: 12-year-old sock. Yeah. Not like a, you know, I don't know, 18-year-old sock.
2: Yeah, like a giant sock, maybe, and a really tiny notebook. But no, that's not going to work. And two, like, Malfoy's not going to take a dirty sock from you. Mm
1: -hmm. Like, he's
2: clearly a, a... Pristine man, mm-hmm. and so it just makes a lot more sense in the movie that Harry just puts the sock Mr. into Malvoy. the book, mm-hmm. so that Malfoy takes the I have something yours. notebook and opens it, um, and there's a sock in it, and he discards the sock. I don't know what you're talking about. That it just—it's just such a little thing, but it's such a good example of moments where Rowling just sort of uh, loses the narrative thread a bit.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about movies when they do something just. To Just a bit better than the book. I know people are, I know people tend to be very emphatic that books are always better than the movie. And that's, I mean, frankly, that's just not true. But one of the really beautiful things about a a great movie adaptation is that it will do things better than the book in a way that complements the book or adds to the book rather than one being better than the other. I really love it when one is good at some things and the other is good at others. Yeah. Makes me happy. What's that? You don't have a
2: single velvet cloak or jewel tipped walking stick? I guess we should pay a visit to Madame Malkin's props for all occasions and talk about sets, props, and the visual
1: aesthetics of the wizarding world. Why don't we start by that thing at the very beginning of the movie that you pointed out to me that I never noticed before in my entire life?
2: I noticed this in the scene um, in Harry's bedroom where he's leaning up against the cupboard that Dobby is hiding in and Uncle Vernon is yelling at him for his cupboard door being broken. And on the outside of that cupboard, there is a hand-drawn picture of Hedwig that has... Hedwig written on it and I can only
1: imagine that Harry drew that picture of his owl and then and then pinned it to his own wardrobe because he loves Hedwig so
2: much
1: he loves her so much that even though he has her there in his room he also needs to have a picture of her up maybe he drew that picture while he was at Hogwarts the previous year when she was out Flying around, owling. Or maybe somebody
2: else made it for him, and that is also so, so tender. So cute. (laughs) So adorable. So that was my favorite prop in the entire movie. (laughs)
1: And then another thing that happened involving Hedwig, who is our favorite, favorite thing to talk about because of the sound effects, is when uh, Ron and Harry are flying the car and they, they have that incredible scene that doesn't happen in the book, but it's it's wonderful where they're like, oh, where's the train? The train must be coming. We can hear it. We must be getting close to it. And then it's behind them and they turn around and their eyes bug out and then Hedwig turns around and she has these crazy CGI bugged out eyes. Oh, wow. We had to rewind it and watch it. I love an owl
2: reaction shot. Like, whenever something like that happens, in my head, um, it's always a voice saying, and what does Hedwig think about this? (laughs) This all started with my teenage um, obsession with the movie Get Over It, which stars amongst many other great teen actors of the early 2000s, Colin Hanks as the wacky best friend (laughs) of the romantic lead. Um, And there's various scenes in which Colin Hanks' only function is to be the guy whose facial expression reacts to whatever is happening. And In my head, it's constantly like, what does Colin Hanks think of this? And this movie gives you so many good moments. What does McGonagall think of this? What does Hedwig (laughs) think of this? Oh, I love a reaction shot.
1: Great. It's so wonderful. It's really great. Uh, we also talked a lot about um, the relationship between the borough versus the suburbs where Privet Drive exists and uh, um, how the borough is so kitschified and the suburbs are just so depressing and bleak and the same and sterile. Yeah. I mean,
2: watching this movie, it was really striking me how the the color palette that they've given um, Privet Drive is sort of like beige and puke green mm-hmm. um, and the color the, the lighting is really horrifying I mean it's just clearly a terrible place to be. Mm-hmm. I mean even in the book the um, the dessert that Aunt Petunia has made for their house guests is supposed to be nice mm-hmm. but in the movie it's disgusting and inedible looking yeah. like everything is terrible um, and then they get to the burrow and it's so lovely and the lighting is different and the full of overstuffed armchairs and watering mm-hmm. cans out in places they shouldn't be and cats yeah. wandering around. <laughs> and And I'm really interested in in how the movie sort of plays these two spaces off against each other. Um, I mean, particularly in terms of class commentary is what mm-hmm. really struck me, um, is that I have a a feeling that in the English very complex class hierarchy being sort of Lower middle class, which is what the Dursleys are, Mm -hmm. um, in the suburbs is very different from being lower middle class in the country. Mm -hmm. And that there's something happening here in terms of how disgusting the Dursleys are um, and how absolutely heartwarming the Weasleys are. (laughs) So if we're reading the spaces in this movie, um, Mm -hmm. which are so, so lusciously decorated that they really encourage that kind of reading, we've got... The suburbs as this bleak, depressing, soulless space. We've got the burrow and its sort of overabundance of homey charm. Mm -hmm. Too many Weasleys all the time, but also just too much everything. Just stuff everywhere.
1: And let's look at this third space. (laughs) The decor of the Slytherin common room, which is historic. Hysterical. It's, it's hysterical.
2: It is so funny. We will when we release this, we should also tweet like a, a screenshot of that decor because no sound effect can capture oh, no. the fact that it looks like they're in some sort of it's like a cross between um like a sleazy gentleman's club mm-hmm. and I was gonna um, say a sex dungeon. It feels like a sex dungeon mixed with a villain's secret hideout. Yeah. But you know what? Sex dungeon is perfect. It looks exactly like Christian Grey's creepy sex dungeon. (laughs) Like the leather furniture, everything, everything looks kind of
1: wet. Yeah, everything looks really wet. And you would think that if... I mean, obviously it can't be wet because no super wealthy dandy would allow his son to, you know, catch pneumonia because the common room of his... In his son's house was too damp, but, but it, it isn't the fact. It's in the dungeon. Yeah, right. We know the Slytherin common room is
2: in the dungeon, um, and that the Gryffindors are in the tower. Which is such heavy-handed imagery. Like oh, Slytherins yeah. are bad. They're, bad. they're bad. They're underground. They're low. That's bad. Mm-hmm. And the Gryffindors are good, and they're up, and they're high, and they're in the air. Things that are high are good. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually finally get to see the space, it's just silly. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, Marcel, you brought up something that would never have occurred to me as we were watching the movie, which is um, as uh, Harry is writing, he starts to write in Tom Riddle's diary, and we see Tom Riddle writing back magically. And that means that in the movie, unlike in the book, we get to see Tom Riddle's
1: penmanship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Harry has this kind of cute and precious uh, adolescent child's handwriting you know where he's obviously still figuring out how to write with a quill and then we get this spectacular elizabethan penmanship replying like it it looks like it looks like they hired the same person who wrote all of um all of joseph Fine's scripts in shakespeare and love to like sign tom riddle and And to like, you know, let me show you, Harry, it like, why, why, why does Tom Riddle's penmanship look Elizabethan? It doesn't make any sense. He's from the 60s, or the 50s, the 40s. It doesn't matter. He's from (laughs) the 20th century. It doesn't make any sense that he has 17th century handwriting.
2: Yeah, it absolutely doesn't. He's not old enough to have Mm -hmm. affected handwriting like that. I mean, So there's two possible implications to this. One is that Voldemort's evil genius somehow extends to particularly precise penmanship. Mm -hmm. The other is that Tom Riddle, having been captured in the diary for so long, has himself just been
1: practicing writing nicely. That's a great idea. Maybe that's it. He's just like, what else would you have to do except for just, you know, pick up an invisible quill and just start writing.
2: Yeah, like you've got...
1: He's been in that diary for however many years. 50? 50 Is it supposed to be 50? I can't remember. Oh, well, yeah. No, I... Oh, yeah, the Chamber of Secrets was open 50 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there we go. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so so that... I might even think that that beautiful penmanship is an extension of the argument that I've been threading through this entire thing, which is that... um, bad forms of masculinity and bad forms of whiteness right. are effeminate mm-hmm. and dandyish in yep. this movie. And that lovely penmanship, the mere fact that he keeps a diary mm-hmm. is effeminate, right? Yeah. And his his uh you know, we talked about him being linked to these sort of cathanic imagery in the book, but he's, you know, the fact that he's linked so strongly to Ginny again suggests this sort of effeminacy. Mm-hmm. Um and I wanna point out that All of these um, effet male characters have as their main counterpoint, Hagrid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who is really the most virtuous, Mm -hmm. uncomplicatedly virtuous male character Mm -hmm. um, in the novels, right? Dumbledore is more ambivalent in a lot of ways as Mm -hmm. a character, whereas Hagrid is just a good guy. He is like the dad character.
0: See, the thing is, Harry. There's some wizards, like the Malfoy family, who think they're better than everyone else because they're what people call pure blood.
2: And what is he? He's big, he's hairy, he's masculine, he's undereducated, he's physically competent, he works with his hands, he's definitely heterosexual...
1: Except he eschews all of those masculinities all the time. He does. He's so tender. Mm-hmm. He refers to himself as Mummy.
2: Yeah. And when when Hermione's feelings are hurt, he is so sweet and
1: gentle with her. Oh my god, when he when he tells her not to worry.
0: More to the point they've yet to think of a spell that our Hermione can't do. Come here. Don't you think on it, Hermione? Don't you think on it for one minute.
2: We watched that. It was Marcel and I and our friend Claire and our tech support Trevor. And the three ladies in the room were tearing up real bad. (laughs) (laughs) And Trevor gave us a scathing look and said, you're all suckers.
1: Typical tech support. Basically robotic.
2: (laughs) Our tech support is a friendly robot who helps us make a podcast. It's true. Thanks, robot friend. So, before we conclude, I would like to open a second question up to our listeners. We yeah. often ask you to help us because um, we don't do research, and so we need you to do it. Because mm-hmm. when we go on the internet, things go badly. <laughs> so, here's our question of the day Why are spiders afraid of basilisks? We look forward to your answers. Thanks so much for listening to episode four of Witch, Please. You can download all our previous episodes on our website, ohwitchplease.ca, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Woo! And we'd love it if you could throw us a rating or a review. At Soros and at Trims have already thrown us some heartwarming reviews, for which we will love them forever.
1: Forever and ever.
2: Speaking of people we will love forever, check out our Tumblr curated by Jason Purcell at owitchplease.tumblr.com, and stay tuned for a special guest appearance by at Neil winner of our totally arbitrary
1: sign-off contest. Special thanks, as always, to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, the robot of our hearts.
2: Hi. How are you doing?
1: Our fanatical devotion goes out to everyone tweeting at us, is a grapefruit, Cat Lady Pizza, Khaleesi's and Amazon's podcast, Trevor Chow Fraser, Neil Politan, Dancy M, Crush Slut, Falcon Boss, Katarina Mary, Maldoglish, Leash, Andrew Bretz, Karina Saurus, uh Danic Dote, that's a great one. Fishy Chris, Catherine Malosh, Emily Hoven, May Us Teapot. You guys are so good at these. Physics Katie, J. Andrew Dick, and maybe some other people? I don't know. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find us at please.
2: That's it for this episode. Next time, we'll be taking on the third book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and probably talking about anti-Semitism and Cold War politics, like, a lot. But until then, later, witches.